Folks, and welcome to another episode of the Survival Podcast. Today is Monday, November the 1st, 2021. I'm cheating just a little bit. I actually did this interview right before I left and went off to Florida. We have some family in town this week that were helping take care of the grandkids while we're gone. So I'm, uh, I'm reusing that content for a couple of reasons. One, so I have the time to do this and go out and be with that family member. But the other side of it is I really didn't have any time to run that as a podcast back then. So we did the interview live on YouTube and Odyssey and Float. And now you'll hear the audio version of the podcast. This is on protection dogs with Joel Riles. What is a protection dog? Well, you're going to hear plenty about it today, but I'll just start off from the beginning with what a protection dog isn't. A protection dog is not a dog that you send under a car to drag a guy out who's hiding from you because you're a cop. That's not a protection dog. A protection dog is not a dog that you send through a warehouse to find drugs. That's a law enforcement canine. A protection dog is not a dog that you use to find IEDs on the side of the road in Afghanistan. <clears throat> That's a military dog. A protection dog is like a protection asset that can go everywhere that you go. Think of it like a firearm to a degree. Not the same thing, not an equivalency. I want you to think about it like. That's a... That's 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 a metaphor for those of you that take things too literally, right? It's not the same. It's like or as, right? All right. So, if you have a real protection dog, the kind that Joel's going to talk about today, you have a dog that's well disciplined and under control and doesn't cause trouble and doesn't act up, listens to his training, follows its training, which means you can walk down the street surrounded by other people and other animals, and you can have the dog with you. You can go places maybe where you can't take a gun, but you can take a dog. But if somebody were to accost you or a family member or someone that was an innocent bystander, much as you might use the weapon, a sidearm or something like that, to intervene, you would use the dog to intervene. Can you really do that? Yes, you can. With the type of dogs that Joel trains, you absolutely can. It's, it is a little bit different than what we've become accustomed to. Uh, with the mindset of what we see on TV. There are actually um, a small group of trainers that even train dogs in this manner in the country. And you'll hear more about that today in just a minute. Uh, again, I am back from Florida. You are hearing uh, new content, but the interview is from a couple weeks ago. Uh, on that, I had a great time in Florida. Thank you to all of you that wished me a happy vacation, that kind of checked in from time to time on me, we and Float. Uh, to see what we're up to. We didn't catch anywhere near the amount of fish that we expected. Um, my friend David and I did go out with a guide, and we didn't even do that great with a guide. It was kind of crazy. It was an odd weather pattern set up uh, with a front coming in that kind of just pushed things out. We did have some really good time, though, and we, we did catch some stuff on the beach, uh, including a really really awesome bonnet head shark that I caught on a very light rod. That was a lot of fun. Now, we ate him dressed up with Redfish Magic seasoning on the grill, and that was delicious. We had a uh, pretty great flight. We called it a fish flight because we tried. Uh, when we went out with the guide, we did both manage to catch a decent keeping size shark. I caught a black tip, probably about 25 pounds, and my buddy caught a uh, silky, probably about 15. Uh, it was pretty enjoyable. And uh, we tried that shark along with some Spanish mackerel and some pompano and some gaff top silk catfish. 
And I'm forgetting one of the other fish that we had on the... Oh, pompano, because my buddy caught a really nice pomp on that trip with the guide. We tasted those all side by side. So it was a good trip. It wasn't, uh, from a standpoint of volume of fish, a great trip. But I do have quite a bit of shark steaks that I'll be going through. As soon as I'm done recording this today and getting them uh, vacuum sealed and into the freezer and what have you. Again, black tip and silky. So that's kind of what went on with that. I am back, and we are going to have a full week of programming this week. Next week is the, the, the big fall workshop. So we'll be doing rewinds at least part of next week. I haven't decided yet on Thursday or Friday if I'm going to run rewinds. I'm thinking I'm not. But I'm doing something this year that we just have not ever done before. And I think it's going to be great. And I think that it will allow me to take a break from podcasting for those two days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I know there's not usually a podcast Saturday, but here's what I'm going to be doing. And we're doing this whether there's rewinds or not. It doesn't matter. All of the presentations that we do at the workshop that are indoors and given to like a classroom environment where this is possible, which is all but two, will be live streamed on YouTube. They may be on the other service as well, but we'll be kind of monitoring YouTube. We'll have uh, some moderation going on in there, including my presentations, all the other instructors. Um, last year, Ken Berry had a talk that he didn't want recorded because of some things that he was going to say that, you know, just we'll leave it at that. And uh, so I don't know if that will happen this year, but I'm going to tell him at least one has to be suitable for live streaming. He live streams all the time, so why not from here? But we're going to have all of the all of the workshop presentations live streamed on YouTube. This should be great. I don't know that it'll be perfect video quality as far as like the presentation. So most of my presenters will probably be using PowerPoint decks. My thought is we'll have those spun into PDFs and throw them on a server somewhere you can download them so that the video itself can actually focus on the presenter. I'll have plenty of help here to get this stuff done. So that's the plan. With that, before I bring Joel on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor day number one is Butcher Box. You know, while I was in Florida, I have kind of a caretaker take care of my place, and uh, my box, my Butcher Box came, including my turkey for Thanksgiving. It was great. And so my freezer continues to uh, accumulate amazing grass-fed beef, pastured pork, pastured poultry. Yours can, too. It's like having your own personal shop or Top quality meat sent to your door. You know, there's been supply chains issues and things like that this year. I haven't had any supply chain issues. And, but it wouldn't surprise me if ButcherBox were to maybe curtail new enrollment sometime soon if we continue to have these disruptions. So the time to become a member is now. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Remember, if you're an MSB member, you can get $10 off every single box for life. That's $120 a year, and your MSB membership's 50 bucks a year. So that one membership benefit pays for everything. Next up today is John Pugliano with the Wealth Studying Podcast. You know, John would tell you that it makes a lot of financial sense to spend $50 a year on something that saves you 120 He would also tell you a lot of other things that make incredible financial sense as an investor, as a money manager, as an entrepreneur, and a business person. And you can learn all about it at the Wealth Studying Podcast at WealthSteading.com. John is a great dude. I trust him 100%. Um, he's been working with us for, oh God, I guess seven or eight years now. I first met him in Salt Lake City, Utah, long before he was even on the show or working with us. I met him at a, a trade show that I was doing there. He's a cool guy. He came up, introduced himself to me, told me a little bit about himself. But you meet tons of people. And I forgot all about it. Honestly, when I was kind of started working with him, I forgot we ever had that meeting. But he said at that meeting he came up and wanted to know if I was genuine. 
This is the kind of guy he is. This is a thinking, methodical mindset. He came up, he talked to me for a few minutes, got out of the way so he didn't monopolize my time, stood off, listened to me talk to others for about a half an hour, told his wife, I've seen what I need to see, I'm happy to work with Jack. If you want someone that thinks that way, advising you of how to invest your money, how to manage your money, you want to listen to John Pugliano and you want to check out the Wealth Sitting Podcast. Well, and with that, hey, Joel, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. I actually should say... Welcome back to the Survival Podcast, because we had a really great interview with you. God, I'm guessing it was almost five years ago, maybe more. Yeah, it was a little while back. Let's see. I was uh, I checked it not too long ago. We did episode 921, was way back when, wow. on Protection Dogs. And then we did one, um, it was 1186, uh, episode 1186. And that one we did on uh, kind of training uh, young men and women and stuff like that. And uh, we still do a little bit of that with our internship program and stuff. But, um, yeah, those were the, the last few times I was on, and I figured it had been a little while, so uh, it might be worth reconnecting. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about protection dogs again today. That is your wheelhouse. Before we dig into that subject, um, and I, you know, I love the subject because I'm a dog person, um, who is Joel, man? Because that was a while ago. I, I, that's actually longer than five years, right? We're, we're up to episode 2900 and something right now. So, um Tell people who you are, like kind of your background and how you ended up in this world, but don't plow into it. We'll get to that next. All right. Yeah. So kind of the brief version is, uh, you know, when I was young, I always wanted to be in the Army. Um, when I was in college, I went ROTC route, was commissioned as an officer in the Army. And um, my first deployment was to the Pentagon right after 9-11. So um, I came back from that. My now ex-wife, wife at the time, was like, all right, got it. You're going to be deploying. Uh, I want a protection dog while you're gone. And that launched me into this world. So um, I we purchased a puppy. I went and started training, really connected with those guys, and spent the next probably 12 years, every four-day weekend, including Christmas and Thanksgiving, which much of the chagrin of my family, um, I was pretty much there training. And uh, they were in Canada, so they have different kind of holidays for the most part. And so they didn't care, and I didn't care, and we were just training dogs every chance we could. And, uh, and then eventually got the blessing to start working on my own, and uh, and then it became uh, my full-time job. So this is what I do full-time now at this point. Very cool and a great way to make a living. Um, for people that are out there listening to this and I hear a protection dog, you mean a very specific thing when you say perfect protection dog. You don't mean... My dog, Charlie, who will plum eat you if you try to get in the fence. You're talking about a dog that's fully trained, an operational type of animal that can be sent on command and pulled off on command. Kind of talk about why it's important if you're looking for this role from an animal to consider that versus just a protective animal. Yeah, so what we do is, I was actually just, I just finished listening to uh, yesterday's episode, um, watch it, I didn't get to watch it live, but watched it earlier today, and uh, you were going into kind of dealing with real life as it is, not how we want it to be, right? And um, and so there's a big difference between the military working dog and the law enforcement working dog, and then what maybe for this discussion we'll call the civilian protection dog. Right. So a, a law enforcement dog, its primary purpose is either to detect typically drugs because law enforcement doesn't do a lot with explosives. They may have one in like a county or something like that. Uh, so it's primarily for drugs and then apprehension. So when they deploy that dog to go and bite somebody nine ninety nine percent of the time, 
its purpose is to grab them, hold them, create some pain so that hopefully they don't fight back. And then the officer is closing distance as fast as they can catch up to wherever the person is, and they put handcuffs on them, right? Uh, on the military working dog side, they really they do some of that training, but they're almost never used for that. They are almost exclusively uh, explosive detection and then some smaller of the uh, narcotics. So mostly we're deploying explosive detection dogs to like Bagram Airfield to search um, you know, the jingle trucks as they come onto the airfield to make sure they're not bringing explosives on. Um, and so they have a very different purpose. What we do is we train a dog to be safe around you, your family, your friends, uh, to move in public with. I fly on airplanes with my dogs, uh, although not since COVID because I don't do that stupid stuff, just like you're driving to Florida. And, um, and so they're safe to move wherever you want to go. But then when you need them, they will fight a human being for you. And, uh, and our purpose is, just like any self-defense protection scenario should be, is we want to end the threat as quickly as possible, but we don't want to take human life unless absolutely necessary. And so the dogs are ferocious, they're intense, they're aggressive. When you flip that switch on, and then the moment you say, you know, typically we train our people, stop fighting my dog and I'll call them off, stop fighting my dog and I'll call them off. Okay, okay, get the dog off me. Uh, and it's out, let's go. That dog releases, comes back to their person, and then I can either resend them if the person's like, screw you, and draws a gun or something like that, um, or get on the ground, look away from me. Uh, I don't want to see you looking at me because now you can tell what I'm doing and plan an attack against me. I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to run to my car and drive away. There's a lot of different scenarios at that point based on who the person is. Like you typically don't want a 90 pound female going to put hands on with a 200 pound aggressor, right? Uh, whereas like me or you may say, hey, we're going to go in and fight alongside our dog. Uh, somebody else, if you have kids, for instance, you have a, a tactical disadvantage, right? So at that point, you deploy your dog, you get to safety with the children, you call the dog back to you. Well, if you have to go put hands on, then that, that plan doesn't work. And then if your dog is aggressive in public, when you don't want them to be, that also creates a problem because now you can't move with your dog and have them with you should you need them. So that's, that's what we specialize in. Yeah, and I, I think it's important that, like, there's, there's two sides to this. Like, I can take my dog into public, and he will not be aggressive with people. But since my dog has lived here, he's not professionally trained at all, I have an issue <clears throat> with other dogs. Like that's right. something else. If you're going to have this dog with you, you have to build that training as well, right? Because like, if he's not aggressed upon by another dog, it's not a problem. But if another dog bows up, then it's like he's full alpha. That ain't happening. Right. Um, so like, I can't take him around town or things like that. That's like, he's a farm dog. He's not supposed to be. But a dog right. like this, you actually have to have control over not just how they'll behave toward humans, but other animals, right? Yeah. So we call it stability and. In general, stability is don't put your mouth on anything I didn't give you permission to put your mouth on. And that includes food. Uh, so when I put their food down for them, I put the food down. I typically, you know, they've gotten so used to this now. Our puppies, you know, go through the training process. But our older dogs, I put the food down and they like lean into me to get some petting. And hey, how's it going, buddy? Oh, yeah, you're a good boy. Okay, now you can eat. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, I can eat. And then they go eat. Um, it, but it also goes for, like, I don't do a lot with tugs and stuff, but a lot of times our younger dogs will play with some tugs and things like that. And uh, so they're not allowed to put their mouth on the tug until we, in that situation, we just get it. So I'll go, oh, get it. Oh, good, get it. When they grab a hold of it, you know, and I'll kind of tug and play with them. And then I stop and go, leave it out. And they're to immediately let go, right? So we start that from the time they're puppies. Um, I have 40 dogs on ground. We always have litters coming. And, uh, and so there's always a lot of puppies around. 
the dogs. We have uh, training classes every Saturday here, so we have people that are coming on, um, sometimes with totally untrained dogs that they're just starting with us, and then a lot of other people that have been training with us for a while. So our dogs, the dogs that are being trained up to go to new homes, get exposure to a lot of other things. And then we have some dog-friendly cities around that we also go into. So they, they are never allowed to show aggression to another dog unless that dog is specifically being a threat to us. I think that's incredibly important because there is a lot of differences between what we're going to go into next. But before we do that, I'm going to take questions on the fly when they fit. And this one does right where we're at. Uh, Bonnie Blue uh, in the live feed on the live stream says, does it require an alpha personality uh, to own a trained dog like this? It, maybe that's not the best way to phrase it. I, I get what Bonnie's saying is, yeah, no, do we need an alpha dog if we're going to train this? Like if we have a beta, can it be can it be trained this way? So sometimes people will ask if like they, they're like, I have this dog. Can we do protection training with it? Um, what we do in those situations is we encourage people to come and train locally with us. I also have a, a franchise in uh, Texas near, in the Houston area. Um, they can go and they can train locally there if they're there. Um, the problem with a lot of uh, trying to take a dog that you already have and do that with is there's there's two critical aspects in, in training these kinds of dogs. One is you got to have good genetics. So the genetics are going to cover things like their temperament, their health, their overall longevity of life, their physical capabilities, their ability to deal with stress. That's probably the biggest one uh, when you're teaching these dogs to fight a human being because a human being is a pinnacle predator. Um, and the stress level associated with fighting a person who's willing to fight them back, um, most dogs, you know, 99% of dogs will not engage in, in that scenario. And um, and so, but what a lot of people view as maybe a beta dog or a dog that's not as powerful right up front, a lot of times that's more of a training issue or a foundational issue. Foundation is the first year of the dog's life. So it may, it may be a situation where the dog's just never been exposed to that stress. And like you could take a soldier and put them in basic or a teenager, right? And put them in basic training. And when they get there, they might be a little unsure of themselves and things like that. And after you take them through the process, that is basic training, they can come out the other side of that ready to go to conflict, combat and, and engage uh, another threat. And, uh, and they can deal with that. So it's hard to tell, though, when, like, I know my lines because I control the process from beginning to end. I breed the dogs, I select the breeding pairs, I choose the puppies, and then we train them from the ground up. So I give a guarantee on our dogs when it's another person's dog, it's always like we don't know until we put them through that training. Yeah, and she wants, she wants, or he, I'm, I'm not sure because it's a neutral name, uh, I, I, wants to clarify. They actually, they are actually asking a different question. Does the person have to be alpha? And I'll, I'll let you handle that because I'm going to think the answer is no. Maybe you make a better trainer, but I don't think you have to be, a, to be a handler. But on the dogs themselves, I've seen dogs that are clearly beta. Our, our smaller dog, uh, Lucy is beta to other dogs. She does not lack courage or aggression. So I think it is a big depends on the dog itself. And what we think of as beta in a pack behavior is very different than beta in our mindset, like a beta soy boy male or something like that. So if you have a really timid dog, that's one thing. But just because a dog will take a beta role in a pack, because trust me, you don't want the beta wolf in a wolf pack at your throat, right? You're still getting your ass tore up, right? So I think there's something to that as well. But also like, so what's being asked here by Bonnie Blue, do people need to at least exude kind of an alpha energy during the training process? So it's not so – the short answer to that is no. You do not have to be an alpha personality. Now, um, 
there are some benefits to that, but there's some benefits to that in general when it comes to self-defense, right? Having a more assertive personality. Um, but most of my clients are actually uh, females that are, I, I wouldn't say they're, they're weaker beta, um, but they're like, hey, if I know if I get in a fight, if somebody attacks me, like I'm not going to go out and look for a fight, but if somebody attacks me, I know I'm not going to be able to defend myself, right? Um, that size matters, no matter what, you know, all the martial arts and all that kind of stuff try to point out. Um, if you got a 200-pound person fighting a 100-pound person, 99% uh, of the time, the 200-pound person is going to win. The only benefit might be the smaller person can run faster or something and run away. Um, but you put a dog into that mix and you totally change the dynamics. I've done a lot of work. Uh, over the years um, with the Tier 1 operation community, the JTF2, CAG, and Dev Group, and stuff like that. And it's funny because you watch those guys walk into uh, the training environment that we have with the dogs, and you can see, you can just look in their eyes, and you see them look at the other people in the room, and they're like, I can take any of these people out because that's just how they look at the world, right? They look at everybody and say, can I take that person, yes or no? But they'll walk past a dog on a table that is a fully trained dog, and they keep their distance, Right. They're like, mm, I'm not sure about that one. And uh, it's like, dude, what are you afraid of? Like, you know, you can kill any person in this room that you wanted to, but you, you shy away from the dog because we have this natural innate like uh, I don't want to get bit by a dog kind of a, a sensation. And so um, what we tell our clients is you don't have to be a dominant personality. What you have to do is be consistent and disciplined. Consistent and disciplined. And that really solves 99% of all dog problems. And it also is what makes you a good handler. Yeah, I think there's something to just the energy in general, too. Like when I ask my dog to do something, it's not a request. Exactly. I'm not asking you, would you please do this, your highness, right? Like I'll actually kind of play around with the fact that he's so well trained now. I can say, hey, Charlie, will you go do this? He'll do it. But it, he knows it's not a request, right? And I think sometimes some people feel more like they want to be polite or nice. And ironically, like, your your phone like Siri on your phone like if you I've seen people cannot get Siri to do anything because they're like Siri can you do this or whatever instead of just like this is what I need right and I think there is something to that but it doesn't necessarily have to be alpha um, what is the difference like when we we go like sport dog training right so like sport dogs I'm training a dog like I used to do this I don't anymore because I don't get time to hunt anymore but you know I had Brittany spaniels that they were fantastic obedient dogs um, but you know, they were in and they were I could take them anywhere. I could take them to a dog park. I could take them to Petco and walk around. The others are on a leash because they made me like. Right. right. We're, we're talking a totally different type of mindset here, though. Yeah. And there, so there's two variations of what people would think of when they think of sport dogs. So what you're talking about is like hunting type sports. And um, and so where a lot of people go wrong with various different dogs is a lot of times they, they pick a dog because they like how it looks. And then they say, and, and then I want to do this thing with it. And it's like, well, but you picked a dog that's a hunting dog. That doesn't make a good protection dog. Or you picked a herding dog. That's not a hunting dog, right? And so if you want to hunt deer, you get hounds that run deer. If you want to hunt hogs or dangerous game, you get the mauler breeds that catch and pull. Blackmouth, cur, and yeah. Exactly, 
And so when you're looking at the sports, if you're looking at um, the hunting sports, that's a whole different kind of approach to dog training. Uh, I love it. I'm actually fascinated by it, but it's not what we do. We're, when I say we're different than the sport training, I'm talking of your what they would maybe classify as protection sports. So there's KNPV, IPO, Schutzen is probably one of the older ones. And what these, all of these sports were originally when they were created, they are um, – like the final test before a dog gets certified to go onto the street or to go do their job in the military. And so there were a few things that they had to do. They had to demonstrate obedience. They, If they were a tracking dog, they had to demonstrate that they could actually do a track. If they were a, a, a apprehension dog or a uh, they call them dual purpose dogs, they had to demonstrate that it could bite and it could do its job there. And then eventually the organization said, hey, you know what, we can make a lot more money if we charge regular citizens to do this and blah, blah, blah. And then that becomes what people think of as the norm when you talk about bite work is they, they follow a routine. So you walk onto the field, uh, there's a guy in the bite suit down there, and your dog deploys, and, and there's various different tests they have, and, and the different sports are each, they have their own nuance to them. So some of them have to demonstrate a, a recall, so they deploy the dog, and it's running, and then it's to tell it to leave it and come back, and it's to stop and return to the handler and not take the bite. Uh, and then when they bite, they want them to bite a certain way. And they the, the thing I look at is I go, what was that originally designed to do and to test? And is that what we're trying to do with protection dogs? So just like um, a lot of uh, self-defense instructors are former military type guys, right? Or some of them are former law enforcement type guys because they get a lot of that type of training. And then they come and they say, this is how you defend against this to the average citizen. And it's like you have to make the transition from soldier fighting combat to citizen on the street dealing with normal stuff. And if you don't, you're not a good self-defense instructor. And so when we it comes to doing this with dogs, we go, number one, you have to be able to safely move with your dog, which means it has to be under control. And basically, like you said, it's not a request, right? I, I joke with my clients and I say, we nobody ever calls me and says, hey, can you send me a list of your requests for dogs? I'm like, they're called commands for a reason because I'm not asking, right? When I say sit, you must sit. When I say lay, you must lay. When I say wait, you must wait. And so we... Um, they have to be able to move in public with us. They have to be safe. And then they have to go when I tell them to go and return the moment I tell them to return. And I'm also not trying to go hands-on. So a lot of these sports, will they use a term called uh, a deep mouth bite, um, or they'll talk about, you know, grips on the dog. And what they want these dogs to do is to bite with their, with their whole mouth, right, and using their molars and everything, which does create more pressure and, and initially more pain on that spot, and they want them to hold there and then stay there. And in that fact, a lot of the videos you see, they have a, a stick in their hand, and they're hitting the dog with the stick, and the dog is not to release and, and let go. It's to stay on that arm, right? And so if I asked you, I said, okay, Jack, you want to learn self-defense training from me? Here's what we're going to do. Uh, you have, the, like, the strongest forearms I've ever seen. Holy crap, you can crush a coconut with those those forearms. And so what you're going to do when the guy attacks you is you're going to grab his arm, and you're going to squeeze I don't care if he draws a knife and starts stabbing you. I don't care if he grabs a bat or a gun. You just keep squeezing and you're going to win the fight. And if I said, that's how I'm going to teach you to do self-defense, you'd say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever That's heard. so dumb. And if I'm going to even try that, I better grab a throat, right? Exactly. Like me, And that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. And if it's a dog, right, and, and I don't want to get bit, but if I offer my dog, if after I offer that dog my left arm as bad as it's going to hurt, and that dog's going to cling to me like that, it's a dog. 
let's just be honest, it's a dog. And if I haul off and hit that dog as hard as I can in the ribs, I'm going to break its ribs on the first shot. And yes. if I keep doing that, I'm eventually going to take that dog out. I can, I, I'm, I'm going to get tore up. I'm not going to like the experience, but I can, with my hands, kill a dog, especially a dog that is that focused on one thing. And I think the bigger problem with what you're describing, and it makes me think of my sporting dog and, and my nightmare, my first one, is since it's a game, the dog is trained to win the game. And the game has rules, and life doesn't. So, like, when I got my first Brittany, I went to this breeder in, in New Jersey, and his line was great, and they'd won all these trials, field trials and everything. And his his sire had some, like, 38 blue ribbons, and his his, his dam had, like, 18. And I go, oh, this is going to be great. So I get this dog out, and we start hunting ringnecks, and all the dog does is run through the field flushing birds nonstop. Well, it turns out in field trials, the dog is supposed to flush as many birds as he can as fast as he can. So he's just doing what he's trained to do. So getting him to stay back, to point, to hold, you know, we ended up putting two tennis balls on his thing, and so they beat on him when he ran to slow him down and all. And, like, that was a total wake-up to, like, hey, guess what? The game, they of course the dog does the game well because the dog was bred for the game. And that's kind of what you're saying in a different world. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so when you look at, especially like Malinois and Dutch Shepherd lines, and there's, you know, if you look up like, um, you know, I want to get a Malinois, what's their temperament and personality like? You know, basically what you'll, the description you'll get is they're insano, crazy, energetic dogs that you have to run six miles a day and, you know, have a, a, a kennel run to put them in or they're going to rip everything to pieces and blah, blah, blah. And that's because the sports thrive on using either a tug or, or treats to get the dogs to do what they want them to do. And then they, and in order to get the dogs to do that quickly, they want dogs that basically are crazy for these things. They're like, Oh, give me the ball. Give me the ball. I want it. I want it. And then, okay, I'll give it to you if you do this thing. And then they go, okay, I'll do it. And then they're like, okay, here's your ball. And the dog's like, woo. And then they, you know, they slowly kind of confine that into the, the routine that they're supposed to do in the sport. Um, for us, I go, that's not your life. Like just like if you get a concealed weapons permit and you carry your pistol on your belt, you know, concealed, hopefully you never have to use that gun, right? So you're probably going to look for a, com a comfortable holster. Uh, you're going to try and conceal it in a way that you can wear it as much as you can and it's not in the way and impeding your life and all this kind of stuff. Well, if 99% of your life with your protection dog is living life, then that has to be livable, with the dog, right? You can't be constantly, oh, the only time I can freaking do anything with this dog is I just put it in its crate, I take it out, I put it on the treadmill, or I go run. And I always tell people, like, these things are pinnacle athletes. If you run two miles today, in a week you'll be running four, and in a couple more weeks you'll be running 12. And unless you just want to run a marathon every day and that's your life, um, that's fine. But that's not what these dogs need. They need discipline. And so our lines are, are much different. Uh, than the the sport bred line. So just like you're saying, your dog was bred to go chase and flush things. And so what they did was they found those characteristics and then they, they bred those characteristics to get more of them. What we look at is um, I've got basically four things I want. I want physical health. So I want the dogs to not have any genetic health problems and to be physically strong, right? I want the dogs to be able to solve problems. So they need to be able to see an issue and, and figure out how to deal with that issue. And the faster, the better. They need to have the nerves to handle stress. So from the, like a lot of people teach their dogs to bite by doing tugs and play. Um, when we start bite work with our dogs, 
the dogs are like 10 weeks old, right? So they're, you know, puppies. They're like this big. And the person that is their handler is, is holding them. They're on a little flat collar. And I walk up to that dog and I go, you have two choices. I'm not talking to them, but this is the, the scenario they're placed in. You have two choices. You can fight me and I'll let you win, but they don't know that. Or I'm going to hurt you. Those are your only two choices. And so initially, of course, they try to run away because they're little. I'm big. They're like, I'm not going to win this fight. But because we basically take all their other options away, they will eventually go rawr, rawr, and, and either bite my hands or bark at me. And as soon as I do, I'm like, whoa. And then they're like, oh, hang on. Like he actually backed off when I did that. And then we just build on that over and over and over again until I can have three guys with training weapons and deploy the dog and we're attacking the handler and the dog just go and smash this guy, run over there and smash that guy, run back over and hit this guy again. And um, and so, you know, we're, we start at the one level and we build. But because it's never a game, there's never the, hey, I, there's just some game I'm supposed to win. Let me do it which is why I believe a lot of law enforcement agencies have so many errant bites. And uh, and it drives me crazy when I see pictures of, you know, they're wearing a sleeve, right? So if you take a bite off our dogs on a sleeve, you better have that dog tethered to something. Because if I let that dog go, it will bite you everywhere but the sleeve. Because they're like, that's the one spot I can't hurt you. I'm going to bite you on the other arm and on the ass cheek and on the leg. And I'm just going to hit you everywhere I can hit you and to cause pain. And so they're wearing the sleeve, but then the guy wearing the sleeve is what? He's either dressed in the police uniform or wearing the military uniform of the handlers that are working him. And then they wonder why when I deploy this dog to chase the bad guy, he goes, hey, look, a uniform. That's the same uniform I always bite. Go and he's closer. So if he's closer, it's more convenient. I might as well bite the guy. That's Why am I going to go way over there and bite that guy? Yeah. So we, we really try to go through and we go, what are the weaknesses? What can we um, train the dogs to do? We want the dogs to win the fight, basically, no matter what happens in the fight. And, of course, there are no guarantees in a fight, right? I always tell people, you win every fight you don't have. And uh, I've heard you saying it recently on the podcast, don't go to stupid places with stupid people and do stupid things. And if you're that kind of person, I'm not going to sell you a dog because I'm not interested in you know ha- getting wrapped up in some kind of lawsuit because you were an idiot. But at the end of the day, the – idea here is if you're attacked, we want to end that threat as quickly as possible, but we want to do it with at least the potential of preserving life. You know, the reality of the situation is most people are unwilling to take a human life, even if they need to. And even if they're willing, they would second guess themselves and question whether they're allowed in this moment, um, because there's so much concern and all that with the legal situations in our country that they go, "Mm, I'm not quite sure. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Now I'll do it. Now it's too late. Right. And then something bad happens. Whereas when you have a dog, you have, you know, there's a reason police carry their bat belt. Right. So when I was a deputy, I had my pepper spray and my uh, taser and my baton and my gun and you know my handcuffs. And so if somebody did something, I could escalate force and you can always like a one step above whatever that person's doing. Right. And of course, they might skip three steps. And so I can then skip to the next step above wherever they are. But I can never go multiple steps above whatever they're doing. Well, for for an average person, if you carry concealed, and that doesn't matter whether it's a knife or a gun because both are considered deadly weapons, right? And you can basically go from, hey, I'm going to talk to you and try and like, you know, talk you down, which is good if you can, but then you go from that to deadly force. And and there's this huge gulf 
of scenarios and situations that happen in there. Whereas when you have a dog, you go, hey, stay back. Stop following me. Okay, now I'm using my verbals to try and, and de-escalate a situation or, or get the person to leave me alone. And then they say, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. And usually, you know, an actual attacker, if they're smart, um, they do something like, whoa, whoa, hey, man, I was just trying to get the time. Or, hey, you know, my car broke down. And they try to continue closing distance in a non-threatening way so that they can get their hands on you. Well, stay back or you're going to get bit. You put your dog on what we call a watch command. They start showing aggression. Right now, I'm holding the lead, so I'm not letting that dog reach that person. But I, I've got my buffer now. So you come within this range, you're going to get bit. And so now I'm showing that, hey, if you come close, you're going to get bit, and you're seeing my dog act aggressively right now. And then if they continue coming in, then the dog's going to bite them. If they draw a weapon, then I can just let go of the lead, and the dog goes in and engages. Then I can decide, what do I need to do at this point? Do I need to run away and get to my car, roll my window down and call my dog to me and let him jump in the car? We can drive to safety. Um, if you're smaller than the attacker or there's multiple people, that's probably your best bet, right? If, um, if it's like a guy about your size or something like that, and you decide this is what's happening, maybe you do go in and make contact with the person, but you need to have all of those options available to you because, you know, any trainer, any self-defense trainer that tells you this is how you defend yourself has never been in a fight because there's always something that goes wrong. It never goes the way you planned. You know, the whole everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. What was that? Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson, um, Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson. And, yeah. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and that's exactly how it works. Like I remember the very first fight I ever got into, you know, we were talking about each other's mamas and stuff. We were younger and, you know, and he got close and all of a sudden I'm looking at the sky and I'm like, why am I looking at the sky? And by the time my head comes back down and I see him, all I see is his fist hit me in the face a second time. And I realized really quick, if there's going to be a fight, you throw the first punch, right? You want to be the one engaging right off the bat. You don't want to start a fight. You want to avoid every fight because no matter how good a fighter you are, you can have a bad day. And no matter how bad a fighter the person attacking you is, they can have a good day. So I don't want to fight if I don't have to. And I want to end the fight as quickly as possible because the longer it goes on, the more chance I'm going to lose. Right. It can turn around in a split second with one good punch somewhere. And um, but I want to go in. I want to do what I have to do. I want to get out and then I want to deal with the aftermath afterwards. What are some of the ways we, we kind of mentioned stabilization already, but where we make this dog safe with children, other pets, other people, because you're talking about a dog that's in some way been weaponized, basically. Like, and, and, and what I mean by that isn't that the dog will bite like all dogs will bite. I have a friend whose best friend almost lost his finger from a Bashan. Like mm -hmm. the two dogs were fighting with each other and he tried to separate them and the Bashan yeah. turned around, almost took his index finger off. He had to have pretty serious surgery for a Bashan. And if you don't know what a Bashan is, it yeah. fits in my lap really, really comfortably. Yeah. Um, so I don't mean that. I mean, like you said, most dogs won't really engage. Now I have a dog that will absolutely, a lot of people think their dogs will bite, you know, and, and they, won't. they might nip or whatever, but they won't. Now I got a dog that will plumb off start tearing into somebody how do we make sure that that doesn't end up being a, a kid and in my opinion dogs trained this way are probably less likely to randomly bite a child or something like that well and that's one of the things i try to explain to the clients that are buying our dogs but also the clients that are training with us maybe with their own dogs right and it's very common especially when somebody brings their own dog or maybe they buy a puppy from us right and so they're training the dog up from the time it was a puppy and when we start doing what we call stability training um, the person is told, okay, you're going to tell your dog to leave it alone. They're going to sit at your side, 
and they're not to do anything. They're just to sit there and leave me alone. I'm not going to attack you, but the dog will feel like I'm about to attack, right? And But their handler is saying, don't do anything. I'm telling you it's okay to leave it alone. And the only time they can break that obedience is if I physically attack you. Other than that, the dog's not to put their teeth on. It's, it's if you send them or you're physically attacked. Those are the only two times the dog's allowed to bite. So... I'm creating a situation where the dog feels like it probably needs to bite. And in the beginning, they almost all fail because the first couple of times you do that, they've been building up to this bite work, right? And then they're like, nope, that guy looks bad. And boom, they come in and bite. Well, oftentimes what happens is the handler that's watching the dog, they're going, leave it. And then I'm looking at the dog in the eyes, right? And the dog's looking at me like, I'm about to fucking smash you. And the person goes, uh, oh, good, leave it. And I'm sitting here looking at the dog going, that dog's not leaving it. So I let them see, boom, I put the arm in there with the with the equipment on, and the dog goes, smash, and hits me. And I'm like, whatever you thought what the dog was doing, whatever you saw that made you think the dog was leaving it, that wasn't leaving it, right? And so the handler starts to learn, oh, when my dog is tense, when my dog is hyper-focused on something, when both their ears are intensely forward, when they're staring with their mouth closed, those are all signs that my dog's thinking about doing something it probably shouldn't do. So now I can communicate before anything happens, hey, knock it off with a correction. I told you to leave it alone. And then when they relax, then I say, okay, good, leave it. And so we start doing that from the time our dogs are pups. As soon as they um, have their first couple of solid bites and all our dogs start. Um, I have scars all over my arms from getting bit by puppies with their little hypodermic needle teeth. And because um, we start them straight on just bare flesh because that's what they're going to be defending against down the road. Right. And then as soon as I go, OK, I can't take any more hits from that dog on my bare skin. I start putting the protection on. But as soon as they hit that a couple good times, then we start doing the what we call stability training. So it's leave it alone. Right. And then when they sit there and leave it, I go, good, leave it. But it's it's very, again, it's back to command. And I, I've always been confused by people that can't read a dog. Yeah. I mean, there's a, when a dog is not even aggressive yet, when he's moving from calm dog to aggressive dog versus mm -hmm. calm dog to, like, what's going on, dog, It's, to me, I can see it from a mile away. I can, like, if I'm at a park and I see somebody else's dog and a kid's playing around him and I see that dog and I'm like, okay, he just, he just wants to know what's going on. I'm like, I, I'm going to go over there and I don't like to get in people's face, but like, that dog's going to bite somebody. Mm -hmm. And I don't really understand. And I guess it's like some people can't read human facial expressions well or something. Like, how right. people don't see that because to me, it's like, Okay, that dog's upset. That dog's scared. Like I can see the emotion on the dog, yep. and you can have, like I said earlier, a Bashan. You can have a Malinois. You can have a German Shepherd. You can have a Pit mix like mine. the The body language is all the same to me. I don't know how you feel about that, but I feel like it's really obvious when you like get in tune with it, know what to look for. So I have probably a third of the clients who train with us at our local classes start off with some version of this phone call. Um, my dog just bit another dog or a person or whatever, and it came out of nowhere. And then they come and we start training and I go, you see that behavior right there? That dog's about to bite. So over the years as I've watched kind of people and what's going on with their dogs is this is my, uh, my take on it is the dog has been going, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that for so long that the person thinks that's normal behavior for their dog, whereas really the dog's going, I just don't have the confidence to bite it yet, but I don't like it. 
And then as soon as they overcome the confidence or something triggers uh, a response, like they actually feel actually threatened or something like that, and they go, boom, and tag it real quick. And then the person goes, it came out of nowhere. And I tell my clients all the time, it never comes out of nowhere. If you watch what the dog's doing in their behavior, you will always see the aggression. You've just seen it so long that you didn't think it was aggression because the dog didn't have the confidence yet to take that last step and actually put their teeth on. Now they do. And you say, it came out of nowhere. So it, it's really important. And that's when, so when we deliver a dog and most of our dog deliveries are here on our facility, but some of our clients that more wealthy clients will be like, no, I want you to travel to me. And when we do that delivery, we spend five days with our clients. And a big portion of that time is teaching them how to read their dog's behaviors. So you see what the dog is doing here. This is what it's thinking. This is what you need to do in this scenario. And dog training is one of these things that, it, from my perspective anyway, is extremely simple but not easy. It's so simple if you know what to do. But the, the not easy part is most people are inconsistent in the way that they act and behave from day to day and week to week. And so maybe they require the dog to do something this time when they say it. And then the next time they're sitting on the couch watching TV and they don't want to get off the couch and go correct the dog for misbehaving. So they just say something verbally and then it's back and forth, back and forth. And then you get this back and forth obedience out of the dog and they wonder why. Well, because you trained the dog to do that, that sometimes they can get away with it and sometimes they can't. Well, can I get away with it this time? Maybe I can. Let's see. And then you start to get frustrated. And then the other part is just being disciplined with the dog. So like you said, you know, we dogs are dogs. And one of the magnificent things about dogs is that they're dogs. They're not humans, right? How many dog people say, I'd rather spend time with my dogs than with people, but then they treat their dogs like people and wonder why the dog doesn't behave properly. It's like, because they're not people, they're dogs. And because they're dogs, we love them. And that's what makes them awesome. But let's stop pretending that they're humans and let's give them the respect that they deserve and treat them like dogs. Because if I treat a human like a dog, it's disrespectful, not because there's something wrong with dogs, but because you're not a dog, you're a human. If I treat a dog like a human, I'm doing the same thing. I'm disrespecting the dog because it's not a human. And so when we start reading the dogs properly, start communicating with the dogs properly, start interacting with the dogs as what they are, as a dog, all of a sudden everything becomes super simple. You just have to be willing to see it and have the consistency and discipline to do what you need to do. What I'll add to that is going back to your beginning where you were talking about the dog not having the confidence to bite yet. That's one way that behavior gets manifested and the bite eventually happens. The other way is it's not that the dog doesn't have confidence. He doesn't really want to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's basically saying – Leave me alone. Leave me alone. And, and basically, like, if somebody's in your face, you don't want to just haul off and slap them. But if you're like, dude, get out of my face. Dude, yep. get out of my face. And eventually, he's getting fought across the eyes, right? Like, I've warned you. So yep. if you don't understand what the dog's body language is, that dog doesn't understand that you don't understand. Like, you right. bring dogs together as long as they're not super aggressive toward each other. They know what each other's body language means. And so they expect that you do. You're with them all the time. So... That dog's like, he just has that look. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't like this. And yep. so if you start treating a dog like a human, you're not using the right cues, right? And you're not interpreting Absolutely. the right cues. Because a person's going to be very clear about the fact, you know, unless they're a psychopath or something, they're going to be very clear about that. Dude, if you don't step back from me, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. The yep. dog has, in its mind, it's done that. It's exactly. done that in abundance. It's body language, yep. It is shown, maybe it showed its teeth, maybe its ears laid back, maybe its hair went up a little bit, maybe it kind of did this maneuver, right? It's mm -hmm. told you. 
and you yep. didn't listen to it. And when we start thinking of a dog like a human, we stop communicating in their language. And I don't know if it's maybe communicating, maybe more understanding their language is the word I'm looking for here. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. The So human beings, when we talk to each other, we primarily, like we could do this conversation on the phone and in just our voice and our vocals, we can get 90% of the conversation. We do it face-to-face and we get a little bit more um, in terms of interaction. But when you're standing there, we pretty much ignore most people's gestures, their body language. Now, of course, I know the you know people that talk about it say you, you pick up a lot from body language and all that. But you get used to certain people's body language and then you just start ignoring big aspects of what they're doing. For the dog, I, I tell my clients all the time, there's three forms of communication that we use with the dogs. We have our verbals, what we say, typically it's our commands. Then we have the lead direction, so we're connected to the dog with a lead and a, and a collar, and we use that to communicate direction and wait and go forward and all that kind of stuff. And then we have our gestures. Well, for us, we tend to think of our vocals as being primary. We tend to, in practical application, primarily use the lead. We rely on it too much to try and get the dog to do what we want. We kind of you know, maneuver them around with it. And then we ignore the body language of the dog very often in our own body language. For the dog, it's exactly the opposite. Dogs don't talk to one another, right? They, you know, they have their barks and their growls and stuff like that, but the vast majority of their communication is body language, how they're holding their tail, their ears, their hockles, whether they, you know, they, they stiffen up and their, their hocks stand up on their back, um, the way they posture and stand, you know, like you said, if they stand up on each other, especially two males, you know, they're kind of challenging each other a little bit. And, and that's their primary form of communication, and that's the primary way that they're getting communication from us is when you move in a certain way, the dog goes, oh, I know what you're doing. I can see whenever you do this, you want me to jump on that table or you want me to wait while you open the door or you're getting ready to open the car door so I can get in. And so they pick up these patterns of behavior and then they react to our patterns of behavior. And in order to overcome that pattern with a verbal, it's it takes a fairly um, you know serious verbal to overcome that weight don't jump in the car. I know you do every other time, but I've got all these groceries in my hands or I can see in the door there's something in the way that if you just crash into this door when I open it, you're going to knock it over and break it. I need to move it so you can get in. Well, you'll see as soon as you reach for that door handle, they're like tensing, ready to, to jump in because, well, that's what we always do. That's what you're communicating to me. You're reaching for the door. When you open the door, I jump in. That's what I do. And so they rely on our gestures and when we ignore the gestures and we set patterns that are patterns that we don't always want, I always tell my clients, be very careful of the patterns you set with your dogs because patterns are great when they're what you want. But when you need to break that pattern, that's when you know the dog steps in front of you, you trip and fall and break whatever was in your hands and yell at the dog like it was their fault because they followed the pattern you always do and you didn't communicate to them that we're changing patterns. And um, so they're, they're very driven by patterns and they're very driven by body language and when we can understand that, then we can start to pay attention to it. And then we go, oh, I know what this dog is saying now. And that's one of the, to me, the benefits of doing any kind of bite work with the dog, even if it's sport bite work, because at least then you know what the dog's mannerisms are when they're getting ready to bite, right? You can you've seen it over and over again. This dog is getting ready to put its mouth on something. Hang on. That's the thing I don't want them to put their mouth on. No, don't do that. And then I can communicate. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's something that people actually need to have a really high level of respect for or appreciation. I don't know, adoration, some some level of uh, gratitude that dogs do this because people, you know, people using the term canine here. This is not a canine trait. 
This right. is a Canis domesticus or Canis familiaris, right? This is a dog trait. Yes. I have seen experiments done where they take a baby wolf and that wolf is raised in somebody's lap and they're not trying to turn it into an attack wolf. They're just trying to chain it into a trained dog and they try to train that wolf to, you know, like say over there and point. And if I say over there, my dog will look over there. He knows mm. if I'm pointing that just the wolf won't do it. Right, right. The dog has become over time evolved to interact with us. And to me, that's a certain level of responsibility and respect and appreciation that we should have because they really are like when they say man's best friend, they're not kidding. Right. I mean, I think there's actually maybe two animals that interact with humans at this level, dogs and horses. Like, yeah, yeah. I, you can tell me how smart a pig is or whatever, but they don't interact with a human on the level of communication that we're discussing today. A horse will do it and a dog will do it. And check this out. There are two things that you can train a horse and a dog to do that I don't know you can train any other animal to do. To trust you above their own fear and instincts. Mm -hmm. So if I have a dog and he really doesn't want to go into a room because it's burning or because there's too many people in there or there's too much noise in there and that dog's trained right and I go in and I tell that dog to come with me, that dog will say, my human says this is what needs to happen, I'm going to do this. And you can train a horse to do that kind of thing too. I don't know another animal. There may be, but I don't know of another animal that as routinely can be teamed up with a human and behave that way. Yeah, I, and I'm not a horse person. I've ridden horses a bit when I was growing up. My uncle was a rodeo guy, um, but I didn't get to spend a ton of time with him when I was younger. But my mentor used to say the dog is the only creature that you can send to its own kind, and if it's bonded to you, you can recall it from its own kind. And um, there's something about... Um, it's, it's one of the only creatures that will choose humans over its own kind. It'll bond to a human being, and then once it's bonded to a human being, it'll say, I choose my human being over my own kind. Yeah, and people will say it's food, but it's not, because I can, I can train bears to come to my backyard to the point where if I'm stupid, I can train them to eat out of my hands. They still choose the other bears, right? They still leave. They don't, they don't like, come inside, curl up at my feet, and, and go get my slippers for me. That just doesn't happen. Um We had somebody make a comment here, and I'd, I'd kind of like if I could find it now, you to comment on this, because I think this is a total misunderstanding, and they may have missed the beginning of the interview. But this person said, I personally prefer to have a well-trained but not weaponized companion. Weaponized dogs have their place, uh, law enforcement and military. We're actually talking about dogs that really are not designed for law enforcement and military here. We're talking about dogs that are designed for the average person or the person like, you know, my son's constantly worried somebody's going to uh, abduct his daughter because she's five, and there's so much trafficking and all like it's not as easy to take a kid away when there's a, a an 85 pound Malinois that says that's my person and you're not allowed to do this. We're not talking about a dog that is trained every day, go out and look for drugs or every day, go out and drag terrorists out by their ankles or bite somebody and hold them down. We're talking about a dog that's designed to be bonded to its people and its handlers yes. and be there for them. Right. Yeah, so I've actually worked with um, training dogs for the Tier 1 units and stuff like that, and we've trained the dogs that go into the teams and uh, that work in the military side of the house and all that kind of stuff, and it's a totally different environment. Like, I, I kind of try to put some of my spin on, on some of that, but they're like, yeah, yeah, we don't care about that stuff. Just put the muzzle on the dog so we can jump out of the plane with it, and then when we hit the ground, we, uh, you know, I just want to be able to point, and the dog goes and kills that thing, right? 
and uh, and their their recall is actually a, an e collar turned up as high as it'll go, and they go pow 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 on the remote, and that's the recall for the dog because in a gunfight when we're getting on a helicopter and we're in a hot extract, that's the only thing that will catch the dog's attention when it's running around smashing all the bad guys and just ripping people to pieces. So that's a whole different thing than what we're doing with these dogs. So when when you say um, I want a well-trained companion. If what you want is a pet, then get a pet and have a pet. But if if you're talking about having a dog for personal protection, number one, dogs that aren't trained to fight a human being will not fight a human being 99% of the time. Um, there are very few exceptions to that, and I have seen them occasionally, but I've seen tons of people who are like, my dog will bite people that come onto my property, and I go, okay, well, I'll throw the bite suit on. Let's see what they do. And the dog's like, never mind, just kidding, man. Like, they'll posture, they'll bark, they'll threaten, but then if I go, I've got a knife, I'm charging you, and I'm going to stab you with it, the dog goes, nope, just just kidding, I'm out, and they're gone, right? And um, and we say in, you know, in the house, they run to the back room and piss themselves. So when you're dealing with, a, if you're relying on a dog as a deterrent, a lot of times they can act as that, right? But if you have a gun, you shouldn't be afraid of your gun, but you should respect your gun, right? You don't point it at things you don't want to uh, damage. You know, all the general safety rules of, of firearms is respect. That's basically what it comes down to. Respect this thing. It can cause great damage if you mistreat it. Well, when we're talking about protection dogs, we should do the same thing. We shouldn't fear them, but we should respect them. But here's the bottom line. Uh, and this applies more honestly to women than it does to men as a general rule. Most women will not actively, aggressively defend themselves if they're attacked to the level that most men will. And even if they tried, like, you know, and, and you see all these movies where this small woman fights off this big guy and, oh, they smashed this little weak thing over his head. And he went, oh, and she ran away. And all of that is just bullshit. That's not how, first of all, when you're in a fight, you don't feel any of that shit anyway. Unless you hit somebody hard enough to actually knock them out, all you do is make them mad and they, they get stronger and they, they increase the level of force. They don't decrease it. And, um, and if anybody doubts this, go to a, a any kind of, of self-defense training and just tell the guy there that you think, okay, I can take a guy this size. Don't hold anything back. Go as hard as you can. I want to see if I can beat you. Guaranteed every time this isn't sexist or anything else. It's just the same thing for me with a 200-pound dude. Right. Me, I'm 180. I'm fighting a six foot, 220 pound guy. He's got 40 pounds on me. I don't want to engage in that fight if I don't have to. Now, if I have no other choice, I'm going to do the best I can. But chances are he's got a huge leg up on me unless I'm just way more aggressive, maybe have a lot better skill set and maybe I have a weapon and he doesn't. Maybe I can come out of that fight. Right. But that's a lot of ifs. And there's a lot of things I don't want to deal with in there. I put a dog beside me. I've totally changed the entire dynamic. Number one, I do have the deterrent which is great, but that's like carrying an unloaded gun, right? If all you have is the deterrent, I could draw my gun and say, stay back, don't do anything. If he goes, you ain't going to pull that trigger and closes distance, I'm like, oh, crap, I have no bullets. So, you know, like you say all the time, an expensive club, right? I can try and whack you with it. And um, so if, if the threat actually comes, if somebody sees you moving with a dog and says, I'm still going to attack that person that has that dog that looks obedient and they're moving with it, right? They've, they're already a higher level of threat to you because – the average person doesn't, even the average bad guy doesn't do that. They go, yeah, I'm going to pick somebody else who doesn't have a dog. Then they close distance on you. And you, number one, if you carry a gun, you can have, like we said earlier, you can have talking and you can have shooting and you have all this huge gap in between. I have the dog with me. I can go, my dog is weaponized, but it's weaponized like a bat belt that the police carry. I can turn it up one level of force bark at that guy and tell him you're going to bite him if he comes closer. Two levels of force. I'm still holding you back, but 
the person has closed distance on me after I've warned them. They're obviously a threat to me. Now you're engaging. Three levels of force. They've drawn a weapon. I can now send my dog to bite. And unlike my gun and other things is, number one, it's very targeted, right? We actually will deploy our dogs through crowds and they, they target aggression because of the way we bring them out. They don't target equipment and all this other kind of stuff. They go, who's the aggressive person? I see the aggressive person. They target the aggressive person. And then now I can run and then recall them back to me. And then when it comes to the legal side of things, of course, anytime you defend yourself in America, you're going to have a legal fight on the back end, right? That's just the bottom line, whether you do it with a gun, a knife, your fist, it doesn't matter. Um, what is it? Uh, U.S. Legal Shield, I think, um, has a um, uh, self-defense. Like the, if you are part of their group, they'll defend you or they'll legally defend you if you have to defend yourself. Well, they were at a conference I was at a little while ago and somebody asked them about dogs, came back to us and said, hey, just so you know, like if you use a dog, they'll defend you for that too. They'll, they'll defend you if you use anything to defend yourself. They will legally defend you on the back end. So that's – I'm not getting paid by them or anything. I actually want to contact them and see if I can get hooked up with them. That's cool. Yeah, I think another thing that people need to understand too about like the advantage of a dog. A dog's in a way like having a buddy with you, right? Because yeah. let's say I, I see you walking down the road and I don't know, I look at you, you're wearing a really nice watch because you went to a stupid place and did a stupid thing, which is wearing a really nice watch in a place where some thug like me hangs out. And I don't have a gun and I really don't want to stab you, but I want to physically take that watch from you. I'm probably going to do something like I'm going to take a little stubby hammer up in my hand like this. I'm not going to go up to you and go, hey, Holmes, give me your, give me your wallet, right? I'm going to walk up from the side of you and I'm going to kidney punch you. Right. And when I kidney punch you with a hammer, guess where you're I don't care if you're bigger than me. You know where you're going? You're going down. Well, now you're on the ground rolling around. You're trying to pull your gun out. Maybe I'm stepping on you. Maybe I want your watch, whatever. That dog. That dog has a different opinion about all of this. And, you know, I, I think it is you know convenient to note right here that dogs heads are right about like kind of the solar genital area, back <laughs> of the leg, Achilles tendon behind the knee, like. All yep. that shit really slows a person down when there's a – and, like, what I love about the way you train your dogs, you don't train a dog to bite and hold. You train a dog to bite and slash. Yeah, bite, slash, and retarget. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so and, – and, and to include, like, even if they're not thrashing, if you produce – like, even if you're going to hit the dog, which hitting a dog, it takes a lot of force to, to injure a dog with your bare hands – um, but you can still do it. Like you said, if you lift up and come underneath, you can break ribs and things like that. You can break their, their legs. Um, if you produce a weapon and you stab, especially if you know how to use a knife and you don't just keep stabbing, you stab and cavitate like you're supposed to when you're attacked with a knife, that dog has about 15 seconds and it's done. And so, um, if, if anything from another hand comes, our dogs release, retarget and hit the other arm. Um, a lot of them will naturally flank, so they'll pull your arms behind you, and so as you try to turn, they just keep turning with you. And that's if you have one dog, not counting if you have two or three dogs, which we train to work together. But the uh, one of the things I love doing that's real appropriate to what you were just saying in that scenario is we do, um, with all our dogs, even our, our baseline dogs, we at least start running attack on handler drills during the delivery. And so an attack on handler is basically an ambush attack, right? So you're walking somewhere, maybe a, a woman running a trail. Uh, maybe, you know, you're like you said, you're walking down a, a bad part of town and some dude's hiding in the alley waiting for you to walk around the corner so he can jump and get you. And when I run these drills, I always set them up where, all right, Mr. You know, handler person that I'm delivering this dog to, what I want you to do is walk this path, go, you know, around that building and over here and through there. And then I'm going to attack you right in this area right over here. Well, guess where I never attack them? I never attack them right there because if you know you're getting attacked there, don't go there, idiot. Right. So 
But nobody ever thinks that. They just think, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. So they follow the path. And then I either attack them before or they get there and nothing happens. And they start going, well, but I thought he was supposed to attack me here. Like, ah, and then all of a sudden I come out of wherever, out of nowhere. And I like doing it that way because the handler is always going, okay, it's coming up up there. Up there, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it happens out of nowhere. And I've had probably 90% of people tell me, by the time I turned around and realized you were already on top of me, the dog had already engaged you, and I'm going, what the heck is happening? You know, because people always ask me, what do I say when I get attacked? I'm like, well, I could tell you what you should say in an ideal situation, but what you're going to do is this. Ah! That's what you're going to do when you're surprised out of nowhere and, and somebody jumps out and starts attacking you because that's what we do when we get totally startled and taken off guard. But the dog doesn't react that way. The dog goes, what's that? They're attacking my person. Boom. And their reflexes are so much faster than our reflexes that the uh, that's actually one of the probably the biggest benefits of moving with them is an ambush attack is almost impossible to do on somebody with a trained protection dog. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Hayes is bringing up a really interesting point here. I think he maybe meant it differently than I'm going to take it. But he said, you know, dogs in a pack are deadly. You got two or three on you. You're in a world of shit. But from your standpoint of being able to recall the dog and all, there is a pack mentality. My neighbors, they're good people. They have some, they're really nice dogs, but they're freaking uh, mastiffs. Mm-hmm. And they have like nine of them. Yeah. Right? They have a big yard and they run around. And if those dogs, like once the dogs got out, I'm like, oh my God, how are they going to be toward people? They blood lick on you and whatever. But they're like my dog. You don't go in their space. Yeah, That's their deal. Okay. Well, if, if you get in here, my dog's going to tear you up and, and, and whatever. If you go in there, they're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Right? Because once that pack mentality kicks in and the alpha's going, then everybody's going, how do you handle multiple dogs and prevent that runaway escalation? Because that seems way different than controlling one dog to me. Yeah. So we do – almost all of our dogs are exposed to multi-dog deployments before um, – they go to their people. And uh, if you actually, if you go over to my Instagram page, we've been posting a bunch of our, our multi-dog deployments. We've been taking dogs that have never deployed together and sending them in, in various pairs um, that haven't previously worked together just to, to get them working through it. And um, the, the at the end of the day, number one, first you make sure the dog does its job by itself the way it's supposed to first, right? And uh, so I should be able to send the dog, the dog bites, it fights, and then I out recall it and it comes back. And, uh, and then I do it with the second dog, make sure that they are good, they out recall and come back. Then I start sending them together. Um, when you do that, a couple of things, uh, there's a couple of different possibilities in how the dogs react. Um, if the dog that, if either dog is not been trained to deal with the threat of the human, fighting another dog is actually less stressful than fighting a human. So if there's only like say two dogs, right? So there's not three or four that are going in and the other dogs are, are, are just following them. Um, there's two dogs. One's going for the fight, but the other one goes, that looks really scary. I'm not sure if I want to do that. Look, this dog is less stressful to fight than that person. I know we're supposed to do something. Maybe I'll tag them on the back of the leg. Right. And so, you know, you want to make sure that there's, there's a level of, of capability in the dog before you start doing that. And then once we know we have, you know, each of them doing their job individually, when we send them together, we can recall them together. We've done, I think the most dogs I've ever done at one time is 12. And, uh, and literally at that point, you're, li- you're just staying on your feet, right? You're not doing anything, but just standing because if we go to ground, you're in a, in a world of hurt. Our dogs target neck and head when the person goes to ground. And so that's our rule is stay on your feet. Like we don't, if we fight on the ground with the dogs, we put muzzles on them so that we can get on the ground and fight with them and do different things. But, um, 
the and, and then all of those dogs were recalled off, and, and it, it was probably like eight or ten handlers. A couple of them had two dogs that they were working, and then everybody else was just individual dogs. And um, and as they're called off, they come back out. Now, sometimes in the excitement, it takes you know two or three recalls, like oh yeah, let's go. You know, you got to kind of get their attention because there's a lot of chaos in that moment in their world. Um, but they all have have recalled as soon as they're called. But it's because we build the process from the beginning and, and we carry it through. So it's when I tell my dog out, like if we get to the point where we're deploying, right? And so there's a difference between starting a dog and holding a lead and, and building a bite in a dog and stuff like that and then sending them away from their handler to bite. That's a higher level of stress. And so we work that a little bit with the dogs. And then when we start doing the outs, if they don't out and come back immediately, which many of them do, probably 60, 70% of them just will, once their handler calls them, they're like, yep, sounds good to me. I'm like, this is really stressful out here. I'm happy to come back to you until their confidence gets up. But um, if they don't, then we do what we call out drills. So uh, we'll leave the, the lead connected to their correction collar, and I try not to step on the lead as I'm fighting with the dog so they don't get corrected during the fight. And then, um, and then when the person calls them, they call them, they give them one chance to out and come back. If they don't, they step in, they grab the lead, and they go, fooey it out, give the dog the correction right at that moment. As soon as it outs, good out, let's go, let's go, praise them. Yeah, you took out that bad guy, good job, as you're moving to safety. And then the dog goes, oh, okay, so when you tell me out, that means stop fighting and get back to you. It means for real. And I, if you can do it with that many dogs, then, I mean, I would imagine that most people that would go for multiples would probably have a pair. And it, yeah, most you know, of our clients have two at, at most. My mentor used to say, one dog is defense, two are an army, three are unstoppable. And when you fight three dogs, you realize um, if I didn't have protection on and, you know, three trained dogs that are going for you, um, there is nothing you can do. As soon as you turn and focus on one, you've got two others hitting you from behind. And uh, and dogs that don't normally bite legs and things like that will start targeting legs. Uh, like I never do. Well, I'll, I'm stupid enough. Sometimes I'll do two dogs with no pants on, no bite pants. Um, but I, I often I've got some good scars and some good bruises on my legs from uh doing that with the wrong pair of dogs. So my wife always yells at me, put the pants on. But um, when we do three, you never do three or more without a full full suit because they will bite you everywhere. Now, this is an interesting question being asked here. Basically, are you certifying the dog as trained or just recommending training a dog for specific purposes? Uh, as far as as many municipalities will put down a well-trained dog regardless of who was at fault. I, I Right off the bat, I disagree with that. Um Kid gets mauled by a dog, yeah, they're going to put the dog down. Somebody breaks into my house, if I would have been justified shooting them, and in my state I would be, I think in yours you would be too, and my dog beats, bites the shit out of them, trained or not, like, I'm sorry about your luck. When, when we hear these stories about these dogs being put down, these are usually people, in my opinion, that are the people we were talking about earlier. That dog was saying, I don't like this, I don't like this, and then the dog out of nowhere bit somebody in the face or something. What yep. we're talking about here, I have to treat the dog like I treat my sidearm. I'm not deploying the dog unless the force being initiated requires it. I'm not walking around and going, I don't like the way that guy looks. Go bite him. We're right. talking about somebody that's committing an act of assault here. So I don't even think that would be an issue. But does certification maybe help with that if you are in, I don't so, know, someplace you probably shouldn't live in the first place? When it comes to this, there's no such thing as a certification that means anything in a legal perspective. Okay. So I always do recommend to my clients, 
don't use your dog unless you have the justification to use deadly force. If you can justify deadly force, you can always justify using your dog because it's less than deadly force, right? So that's the the intent. That's the focus. Um, I don't know about most municipalities nationwide, um, but most that I've checked, and I've lived in Alaska, Wyoming, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, Florida, um, uh, Georgia. You know, I've lived many places. Now, most places would be considered conservative in the country, um, but the vast majority of them, because I always look up my county and state ordinances when I'm getting ready to move to a new place, they will say unprovoked bites count against the dog. And so a provoked bite is like you said, somebody breaks into your house, somebody's threatening you, somebody attacks you. Those are all provoked bites. And they, and even most places that I've seen give like a two or three strike kind of a rule, um, where they have to do it a couple of times, um, before they're put down. And, uh, and, but even in those situations, if it's provoked, it doesn't count against the dog. So now when it comes to, you know, liability and all that kind of stuff, anytime you defend yourself, you're going to have liability issues. Anytime you, you know, hurt another person, you know, no matter how big a dirtbag the person was, he was a good boy and he wasn't going to hurt anybody and, you know, or, or they were going to do some great and wonderful thing and now, you know, their hands injured so they can't and million dollar lawsuit or whatever. And there's just nothing you can do to avoid that in America. So, but it's, it's the same whether you have a gun, a knife, your fists, anything else is if you do something like that, then you're gonna, there's going to be the fight after the fight, is what, how I always describe it. There's the fight after the fight, and you want to set yourself up for the fight after the fight as best you can, and you always want to do what you're supposed to do you know, anyway. You shouldn't be running around hurting people that don't, um, aren't intentionally trying to hurt you. You're, uh, what is it, the non-aggression, right? Non-aggression principle, absolutely, yeah. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about, like, you've kind of alluded to this a few times. In many ways, a protection dog may be a better uh, form of protection than a gun. I mean, one example I can think of that is my 14-year-old daughter can take a walk in the park with a dog but not a gun. Um, I might be able to not take the dog places I can take the gun, but I may also be able to take the dog places I can't take the gun. I get so on the plane with there... my dogs all the time, right? can't take a gun on the plane in, in cab with me, but I can take my dogs in cab with me. Yeah, or a lot of hotels are fine with you know, dogs. You might have to pay a little bit of extra money. Uh, before we go ahead from the liability issue, I just want to point out, like, I have an umbrella policy for mm -hmm. anything that happens on my property outside of what's already covered. It's $8 a month for a million dollars of coverage. Yeah. Just saying you might want one, you know, like, and, and I hope the person that sues you loses, but at least you're not going to go bankrupt, lose your home, lose your business, right? Exactly. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, let's talk about traveling with a protection dog. What, what's that like? So I guess it depends on your perspective on traveling right now in the country with all the craziness that's going on. Traveling in a vehicle with a dog is, is super easy. Um, either you, I, I always recommend having a crate with the dog um, because if the dog can move around a lot in the vehicle, sometimes that movement makes them have to use the bathroom sooner than you want to stop. Uh, when they're in a crate that's properly fit, they, they're comfortable to lay there and relax, but they're not moving that much. So movement of the rear legs is what gets the dog having to go to the bathroom, right? So if they're walking around, moving around, then, you know, if they were laying still, they could have gone another two hours, but they can't when they're moving around. So uh, when I drive, I usually have dogs in crates. Even when they're not in crates, they're usually in what we call a place because I, I have 10 kids between me and my wife. So the uh, there's usually kids all over, so I don't want dogs trampling all over the kids, right? So they lay in their place. They stay pretty still. Um, about every two or three gas stops, I'll take them out to use the bathroom. They go to the bathroom. They're all happy to stretch their legs and all that kind of stuff. They get back in. That's pretty easy. When you travel 
um, commercially, whether that's, you know, on a bus, whether it's uh, airplane, things like that. Now you're getting into the realm of service dog type of stuff. So there's different um, ways to go about this. Uh, number one, I always recommend people, you only do what you're comfortable doing. Do not say you have a disability if you don't have a disability, all of that sort of thing. Um, but if you go to the Department of Justice website and look up the Americans with Disabilities Act service dog statements, uh, the things that they identify a service dog as being, probably 90% of people have something on that list. And, uh, and if you're one of those people that have something on that list um, and your doctor recommends that you have a service dog, that you would benefit from the use of a service dog, then you legally have a service dog as long as that dog is trained to move safely in public with you and performs its duty. Whether, you know, like we talked about so many people having type 2 diabetes, but, um, you know, people that have hearing loss, like I was in the military, gunfights with M60s or, or earpieces we wore under our helmets. When your face is against the stock of that M60, you break that seal and, but you know, in the middle of a firefight, you shoot anyway. And now my wife's like, hey, I'm talking to you. And I'm like, it's funny, the tone of your voice is exactly in the tone of areas I can't hear right now. But, um, you know, so you, you, if you have a disability that fits in that category, then you can have a service dog that performs that task. And a lot of times you can get a trained dog and then finish that portion of the training for you personally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think another thing about a dog is, so even now that I can carry completely open carry in Texas, I can carry open carry in Texas without a permit now because we finally joined the world of constitutional carry. I don't generally want to. Right. right? I prefer that a person not know that I'm armed. So the gun is only a deterrent when it's either shooting at somebody or brandished. And brandish is generally a bad idea. Like, you don't want to brandish. You're not a cop. You're not looking to arrest somebody. The gun stays in until the gun, you know, needs to be used, right? Um, I guess there are times when a gun displayed is justified and does de-escalate, but it's... Nine times out of ten, that's considered a felony. Yep. And depending on your state, they will say... Why did you pull it if you didn't need to use it? That's 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 the line, right? However, you know, we were talking earlier about like a lady jogging with her dog or your kid taking a walk with the dog. Criminals follow the predator-prey relationship well, and if a lion sees a limping wildebeest and it sees a really healthy wildebeest, it knows even though I can kill a wildebeest, they don't exactly not fight back. So it goes for the limping one, right? Yep. So when a criminal sees somebody walking around with, especially the kind of dogs you're talking about, you're talking about Dutch Shepherds, uh, Malinois, uh, I don't think you do German Shepherds, but German Shepherds, like dogs we typically think of in this role, there's just an instant like, you know, maybe him instead of him, right? Like I don't want to to make that choice if I have another choice, right? Because we're not, you know, I'm sure you have some upright clients. Maybe you do have some people that might be specifically targeted but 99% of violence is, the, the kind we're talking of, is random. Here's an opportunity to take from this person. I see a dude walk in a freaking dog, even a freaking golden retriever or something. I'm probably going somewhere else because it makes noise. It's an additional variable. So I think the dog is a huge deterrent in of itself. Yes. Yeah, and that, like, my client, I've had numerous clients that have um, sent me messages um, you know, the dog saved the day again, here's what happened, right? And it'll, it's usually something like it's not, oh, this person attacked me and I deployed my dog on them. It's I was traveling and I had to stop in Chicago to get gas because I was stupid and didn't fill up before and, and 
you know, make it through that area without needing to stop again. And so I'm at this sketchy gas station and, you know, I left my dog in the car. I went in and paid on my way out. This weird guy starts following me out the door. I walk straight to my vehicle, open the door. They see my dog and they go, never mind and veer off. Right. Um, my own daughter had a situation where, um, we were traveling as a family. So we had, uh, I think at the time we had six kids. We had a big 12 passenger van. Um, and we're traveling, people using the bathroom. And I think my daughter took all the little girls in. She's the oldest daughter uh, to use the bathroom while I'm getting gas started and all that kind of stuff. And then they come out and we go inside. So she's out there with three other little girls all by herself. And, uh, and there's this dude just leaning against the wall, just staring at her, right? And older, sketchy looking guy. And, uh, and then he starts walking toward her and she just goes, mm, I don't like the look of that. She opens the van door, gets my Malinois female out and puts her in a sit next to her. And the guy goes, never mind and veers away and walks in another direction. And so just having that deterrent makes a huge, huge difference. And of course, a big part of that is that the dog looks the part. So not just that it's a Malinois, but that it's a dog that has obvious training, right? And that yeah. doesn't always have to be protection training. Uh, we do sell what we call a fully obedience trained dog, which has all the same training as our basic protection dogs, but no bite work. Yeah. It. Yeah. And there is something to that, that, that sit and the dog locks up. Yep. Shit. This dog's probably going to do what it's told to do. Like, you know, it's, it's a deterrent. It, Dogs are a deterrent anyway. Like if people said to me, like Jack, I I don't want to feed a big dog, I don't want to deal with a big dog, but I want to add to my home security. Does a dog fill a role? Get a little yappy or a couple little yappy ass dogs because just the fact that somebody comes to that door, they go ape shit and start losing their minds, even if they're going to run away and hide. It's still a deterrent because I'm relying on the ability to sneak in and out quietly to at least get in there before you know I'm there. And you're kind of blowing everything with it. I mean, freaking lots of offices or something. I don't recommend those for a protection dog, but I do believe they add to home security because what is their ability to smell and hear compared to yours? Exactly. A thousand to one or some crazy shit like that. There's nothing goes on outside that door that these dogs are not aware that something's up. Even if they don't go full on, like you just see that and you're like, oh, something's going on out there, you know, and they're never wrong. Have you ever heard exactly. that about them, Joel? Something. If they tell you something's going on, something's going on. You may not realize what it is, but something's going on. I had it could be a raccoon or possum, or it could be somebody snooping around the outside of your house. But they're not wrong. You know, we had a dog one time, and he was obsessed with my kid's backpack. This was when Matthew was a little boy, and he was obsessed with it. And we went through it like five times, and he would not quit. And there was a field mouse in it. And we, I mean, the way it had gotten in there, you couldn't find it. But the dog was like, no, yep. there's something. And he wasn't wrong. And that yep. that instinct is something that makes them the perfect partner for us because we can think at levels they can't. But they can hear. They can smell. And I believe, personally, there is a sixth sense. I believe humans have it, too. But I believe they have it more, right? Yeah. When you're so, hunting and you're you're sitting in a deer stand and you hear nothing, smell nothing, see nothing, and the hair goes up on your neck, and five minutes later, the deer comes. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. And they have it at a level that we can't even begin to understand. Yeah, so we did one time. This was like kind of an experiment for me, but it was one that I really enjoyed. Years ago, I used to volunteer for sniper competitions. And I would come in, and this is when I was doing more of the tactical work with the dogs, and I would come in, and uh, I would do the op four for the sniper competitions. So I was hunting sniper teams 
with my dogs. And, uh, and some of these were just, you know, regular dudes who wanted to, to do it for fun, but they had military and law enforcement uh, guys that would come and do these competitions a lot as well. And, um, and the way we would find most of the, the teams in these competitions is we would find a semi-elevated position um, that had good visibility around, and I would sit up, and I'd scan with my binoculars and stuff, but I would just watch my dog. And sure enough, she'd, she'd be sitting there all relaxed, and all of a sudden she'd go, and as soon as she looked, ears up, I was like, I'm checking. Because they say dogs hearing in terms of their ability to detect decibels isn't a lot better than ours, but what they can detect that we can't is a lot broader range of, of uh sound. So, um, you know, the, you know, part of the moving as a sniper and all that stuff is taping all your stuff so it doesn't make noise. And, you know, we used to do this in the other branches as well, right? You, you silence your equipment so you're not having metal clacking on metal and all that. Um, but there's all sorts of other sounds that we don't hear with our ears that are within the spectrum of what the dogs hear. She would indicate, I'd start looking with binoculars. Sure enough, every time she did it, there we'd find a team moving. We'd wait till they passed a landmark. We'd move to that landmark. We'd cast off in a track and we'd track them right down and uh and we did that over and over and over again but it's that sixth sense of just knowing there's something out there i can see it it's out there and uh and when you trust them and you look for it it was always there can you uh just give an example of some things that a protection dog can can win the day with like have you had any success stories like a someone that owns one actually had a, an attack happen and the dog thwarted the attack and i mean a lot of times i find that like I said with the guns, like you don't want to go pointing guns at people or whatever. But honestly, you know, if I draw the gun, I, the way I can justify that, I draw the gun and I was going to shoot you. But when I drew the gun, you ran away. Right. right. So so then I de-escalated, Right. And that happens. That actually does happen a lot. And that usually is not a felony because, you know, when they saw the gun, they ran away. Well, good. Now, if I shot him in the back running down the street, you right. know, I don't know if you have my TV in Houston, you. There was a guy who did that, and they're like, "Well, shouldn't have took his TV." <laughs> but yeah. uh, but with the dog, I think honestly, maybe there's a lot of instances where the dog's presence alone, like you said, like you have no idea whether that guy was going to do anything to those girls. Maybe he was just walking around being a retard. Who knows? But have there been any examples of like real world the dogs, you know, did the dog's job and and changed the course? So we've gotten a lot of comments from people on situations similar to that, all sorts of variations on people. Uh, avoiding. We actually had one in, it was in the Houston area, um, had their dog in the, in the yard and had Antifa during that crazy time when they were like, yeah, we're coming to Texas and doing stuff. And, um, I think it was the uh, Austin. Where's the crazy liberal place in Texas there? I think it was Austin. And, um, and so they lived in one of the little, uh, neighborhoods just on the outside of that city. And they came walking down their street and they walked outside with their dog and, and the group of people were like, yeah, I think we're going to go down this road over here and uh, go a different direction. So thankfully, honestly, we've not had the uh, people actually have to deploy their dogs. I do get stories a lot of the deterrence um, where we probably had the most success, although I always go, I don't guarantee this because you never know until it happens. Um, but I have had uh, clients, three or four clients uh, have these sorts of issues. One had... Um, uh, mountain lion uh, stalking them, and they they uh, when it came around the corner, where it finally was made contact, you know, eye contact with them. Uh, they turned with the dog. The dog bowed up aggressively at the cat and started barking, and it and it ran away and left him alone. Uh, so they were being actively stalked by a mountain lion that was uh, thwarted. Uh, we had a, a client in the um, 
it's Denver area, but it's Long, Longwood or something like that. Uh, one of the like you know outskirts around Denver because it's landlocked around all the other little cities. And uh, they they live up in the mountains and uh, had a grizzly bear come up on their porch. And um, it actually was approaching the porch, and they'd had numerous grizzly bears on their porch. Their boys, they had four or five young boys out playing outside, and uh, the dog chased off uh, the grizzly bear uh, to leave the kids alone. Things like that have happened numerous times uh, with clients. Um, you know, it, it would be quote unquote cool to, to hear a story from a client who had somebody actually attack them and the dog uh, full on engage. Um, but when we train our dogs, we train them to deal with people's everyday lives. And I think the deterrent factor alone has really kept that from, from ever really being an issue. I think the deterrent factor is huge. I had a couple of guys show up at my gate when I lived in Arkansas and we're like the end of a road. We have a gate. You don't come back there. Five families live there. It was middle. It was like almost midnight and there's this car just sitting out there with the lights on. So I went down through the woods and came up behind him and hit him with a light. And I had my German shepherd with me and I'm there with a car being across my chest and just wondering what, cause it's just, I know some people might think this is overreaction, but the place that we live, this is not supposed to be happening. And right. there were two guys in the car and I had the dog with me and it's a 140 pound shepherd. And people always think when you say that, like everybody, no, my dog was 140 pounds in his, his prime. This was the biggest German shepherd I've ever seen in my life. Yep. And he wasn't a trained dog, but he also knew when shit was up mm-hmm. and they're like trying to plead their case to me. Can I open the gate so they can turn around or whatever? And that dog let out a growl that didn't come out of his mouth. It came out of his ribs. Yep. And the, like they couldn't see me cause I've got them lit up and, but they heard that growl and the, the white, in their face was inst- like the blood just dropped out of their face. Like, Oh, we're in way worse shit than we thought they were. And it was the reason they wanted me to open it was they said that they couldn't see it. And they were, tr- they were it was serious. If they would have backed up too much, they would have went in a ditch and not got out. Right. Right. They did about a 37 point turn, mm-hmm. you know, and then they went down the mountain and it ended up, there were a couple guys looking to score meth and they knew my neighbor's last name, but not his first. That does not work. Right. That's not, that's not getting you in the gate. And they were looking for his brother who was a meth dealer. Yep. And so that was a perfect example of that dog, not even a trained dog. I think that one of the greatest things about dogs when they are trained to obey and yep. they look the part, like you said, people don't want to get bit, man. I'm telling you. And I don't, I don't want to get bit. No, you know? I don't want to get bit. You know, I'm not saying you can't all the time. You'll, 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 you'll endure it, but I don't want it. Right. Yep. Yeah, I take bites off dogs a lot. And um, if you had a serious dog and no no protection, you're like, I always go, if that happens, I'm still going to win the fight. You know, because if you get in a fist fight, you get punched. If you get in a knife fight, you get stabbed. And if you get in a gunfight, there's a good chance you're going to get shot. And if you're not willing to enter that fight and win anyway, even if things you know, go bad, um, then you don't have the right mindset for a fight. Um, so... If that happens, I go, I'm still going to win the fight, but you are going to the emergency room and you're probably looking at permanent injury uh, on you know, to your hands probably most likely. Yeah, I I just think of a, a dog, you know, Malinois are generating like the 80, 90 pound range and a dog that size, and they get into the metatarsals. I just think of when I throw my, my pit mix of freaking beef rib yep. and watch him crack a beef rib and go, this is nothing. 
This is know, absolutely nothing for a dog to go through. Exactly. Well, and you just reminded me, you know, it's funny because one of the biggest criticisms we get uh, when people watch, you know, they see our dogs reverse and they're like, oh, they're not biting full mouth and holding on. And I'm like, I don't do sport fighting, guys. Like, this is what we teach our dogs to do. But one of the other things that I get uh, that people will say, oh, those dogs have weak nerves. They're biting hands. And because uh, our dogs will target the end of the hands. And when I do bite work, I'm like, clench fist because when you do get hit in the hand even when you're tight it still freaking hurts and um and and i i always kind of reference we did a uh, we went to shot show one year and i was with a friend of mine who was a seal team guy and so he had all these connections right with all these other guys that were there and uh, so we kept getting invited to do all these dog demos because there were f- probably five or six dog companies roaming the space and a lot of them had other military connections and so they were all connected together and they were like hey we're doing this demo over here at this time bring your dogs over and we're going to do this bite demo and so the the two things that stood out to me the most was um, so I come over and, and they're literally, there's like, Hey, stand there. When it's your turn, you'll bring your dog up and bite. Right. So I'm like, all right. Like, like, you know, I'm looking at my buddy going, are you sure we're cool with this? He's like, yeah, it's good, man. I'm like, all right. So these other dogs are coming up and they're biting and, you know, they're doing, showing like a bicep bite and they hold their arm out like this, which of course that's how people fight, right? When you're getting ready to attack somebody, you just stick your arm out like that so they can bite your bicep. And uh, so anyway, so they're doing these different, you know, decoy things where the dogs are biting and, and some of them was just to demo certain things, but um, every one of those dogs, when they would come off the bite, like we're at shot show, right? There's like, I don't know how many people, 10,000 people on the, on the floor. And, uh, so, and this is a demo. So everybody's crowded around and they've got to move their dog from the center space. That's, that's clear through the crowd out to, and every one of those dogs barked and lunged at somebody on their way out. Yeah. And they're not deescalated. Exactly. And then, and so, so they go, okay, it's your turn. And they look at me. And I've got my personal dog there with me. And the guy's bite suit, which you know, you see a lot of the bite suits that are like this, it ends at the wrist. So his hands are out of the suit. And I said, listen, dude, if I deploy my dog on you, you're getting bit in the hands. Now, this was an experienced sport decoy, somebody which we say we're not decoys. We're canine sparring partners, right? We're teaching dogs to fight. But the um, he was an experienced decoy. had been you know, thousands and thousands of bites. The minute I told him he was going to get bit in the hands, he was like, what? Like face went white, eyes as big as saucers. And, and so the guy that was kind of D, you know, DJing, if you will, you know, was commenting on the, on the whole thing. He's like, well, is there anything we can do? And I said, well, if you turn his back to me, put his hands kind of up high on his chest, I can deploy him. He'll hit up in the back tricep area and then just don't freaking fight him. Cause if you fight him and you bring that hand around, he's going to smash you right in the hand. And so they were like, okay, so we, we deployed him. He bit the guy. And then the thing that was funny to me is every other person had to walk up and pull their dog off, right? So my dog's sitting there thrashing this guy and all that kind of stuff. And then I go, out, let's go. And he went, whoosh, right to my side and sat at my side. And people were like, what? And then I was, they were like, okay, it's over, thanks. And then I go, foos with me. And we just walked through the crowd. And people were touching him as we walked through the crowd because that's what people do when you're like in tight and a dog walks past them then you want to reach down and pet it and he was just like oh hey how's it going and had never had an issue with anybody because it's a light switch on and it's a light switch off and you know to me I, I go why does anybody train dogs especially for civilian people right like I could kind of I still think there's better ways but I kind of understand it from a military law enforcement perspective things like that but when you're training dogs for civilians to have and at the very least they're going to be living in their homes and have friends come over right to have that dog not be able to go leave it it's over and they go okay it's over like we do drills with with a lot of my more advanced dogs where we literally deploy them we recall them they lay down the person in the suit comes over and starts loving on the dog 
And it's because when he's a threat, you attack him. When he's not a threat, you don't attack him. It doesn't matter if you were just attacking him five seconds ago. If he's no longer a threat, he's no longer a threat. It's over. And, you know, not all my dogs I let people pet, but at the same time I go, but if somebody reaches down and pets you, you can't bite them for it because we move in public all the time. People do stupid things. People touch your dogs without asking, and the dog has to be okay with that. Yeah, definitely. I, I do, you know, you were talking earlier about like dogs for people with disabilities, working dogs and all. And, and I, I just want to, I forgot to say it then. Don't abuse that. And if you're gonna, if you're gonna do it, okay, you're gonna do it. That's okay. But the dog has to be well trained. And I'm not just talking about profe- uh, pr- pr- protection dogs here. There are people that rely on those dogs for their literally, for, I have a friend, literally, his life is enabled because he has a dog, because he has certain things that happen, and the dog tells him before that happens, he wouldn't be able to legally drive a car without it. And when you abuse that or you just put a vest on a dog that's not really a working dog and you take that dog into a place that it makes a scene, not even bites anybody, just makes a scene, it hurts the people that need it. So be real careful with that. But what makes me think about the petting thing was it's amazing. Dog wearing a vest says it's a working dog. Says, Please don't pet me. And people come up and want to pet that dog. And like, that is something you have to train for that the dog will not be aggressive on pet. You know, I mean, because people pet dogs, you know, I, I understand it, but you know, it, people will do it and you got to be prepared for it. Now, the yep. way you're describing your dogs there, like the performance that you got out at shot show. Is that one of the things that really separates Fortress Canine from other services? Is I mean, what you do, I already know, is not typical. Does it even exist elsewhere? Is this really something unique you developed, or is there like maybe a small cadre of people that work this way, or something? I wish I could take credit for creating it from the beginning, but um, I so I learned from my mentor in Canada, and uh, I don't say their name because they had a thing go on where. Um, they they had a marketing dude come in and they built the company up real big and they said either you guys sign a no compete or uh, you have to completely cut ties and uh, and you can't use our name to promote yourself anymore. So uh, so I don't go into the the specific name, but there is kind of a group of us that came from that that all went. We're already running businesses, man. Like we can't stop running our business and taking care of our families. And they were like, no, you guys are good. Just don't you know don't write our name. Don't use our name to sell your service. I got you. Correct. And uh, so there, there is, I know of probably about four companies that like are solid companies that have been running for years and, and aren't like, oh, I'm going to sell a dog. And then I'm, I really do this other thing for a living though. And I can't, you know, I can't take care of myself with it. So there's about four of us in the U.S. that do it. Um, one of them uh, is a good friend of mine, but he's in Montana. And he actually now almost exclusively does dogs for the, um, the marijuana grow fields. And he does them more like the military dogs. Like, you see somebody who doesn't belong here, smash them. And so he doesn't really do the family protection, but he does a lot of the other, the same concepts of training and stuff like that. Um, as far as focusing on family protection specifically, uh, as far as I know, I probably give more emphasis on that than any of the other guys that I know of in our group. Um, the biggest thing that separates us, besides the stability, which that's a huge one, right? Uh, to me, that's the number one most important thing. If you're going to put a train dog that's been trained to bite people with other people around other people it can only bite when it's told to bite so stability to me is absolutely critical but the other thing that separates us is most of the places that sell what they call protection dogs the way that process typically works is there are breeders 
there are initial trainers and then there are the comp- the ending companies, what I'll call the finishers of the dog. And so the breeders breed the dogs and then sell them as what they call a green dog, which is typically a six month to 12 month old dog. And, uh, and then somebody will buy that dog. They'll train it for a sport. Almost always is how these, these dogs get found. They go to the sport ring, Schutzen, KMPV, IPO, whatever it is. And excuse me. And they do their, their demo, right? They do the, the competition. And then there's guys in the stands, the, the finished trainers that go to these competitions and they watch and they say, that dog's good. That dog's good. That dog's good. And then they go down and they buy those dogs after the competition. And then they finish the dog and then sell it to the family, um, when it's done. And so you've had three different people, at least sometimes four that have put their hands on that dog and influenced that dog's development. And the problem is you, you don't know. And it's going to be inconsistent even with the same finisher. He's not getting his dogs from the same people always. So even that's going to vary based on who he got his dog from. What we do is we select the breeding pair. We breed the pair. We select the puppies that are going into our program, which I tell people I can pretty much close my eyes and grab any three or four puppies, and they all do awesome. I I do personally like different personalities in the dogs, but that's really our biggest difference is the personality, not their capability. And we train them from the ground up. So their foundation, their first year, which makes the, a huge difference in the whole rest of their life. It's one of the problems with getting a rescue dog is often their foundation is what's messed up. And you can, you can help fix a lot of the problem, but you never fully overcome the foundation if it's a bad one. And, uh, but we put the foundation into the dog and then we finish the dog and we sell it to the client. And then the other thing we do is we, because we've got so many dogs on ground, is when our clients go, you know, I have, I've got one client that's got seven cats, uh, four li- literally like teacup size, well, maybe not teacup, but like mini dogs. And, um, and she was like, is, is a male Malinois going to be good with my dogs? Well, at the time I looked around and I said, I have one male Malinois that has no issues with cats or other, you know, and like, like no issues, right? Most of our dogs are good with all the other animals, but you know, you got to watch some of them a little bit more than others. And this one was just like, Oh yeah, I love all the little animals. So I was like, yep, he's a perfect fit. And I, she still to this day, send me pictures of the cats snuggling with them and playing with them. And, uh, but we try to cater and specifically select from what we have on ground, the very best dogs that will match what that family and that person needs. And then we place them with those people. So we try to stay away from any of the sports stuff and we try to, to make sure that, you know, we control the process from beginning to end. So how can people learn more about you? Maybe meet up for a demo or whatever. Uh, Xavier Hawk was in here. I don't know if he's still here, but he was here for a minute and he said, he's got a Malinois coming in a couple of weeks. So he wanted to know, you know, how, 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 how does he get in touch with you? He's in Florida. You're in Florida. Oh, awesome. Right? Yeah. He's down near Miami. So, I mean, I don't know exactly where you are, but like you do demos and maybe yep. give people a, a whiskey sample when they come hang out or whatever, right? Exactly. Yeah, we have a lot of people that come to the facility. Um, I have people that will drive from Tallahassee, Jacksonville, uh, over. I'm in Orlando, so they'll come from over in Tampa. So two, three hours. Um, and some of our clients will do, they'll come in like on a Thursday night and get a hotel. And then um, for, for certain clients, I don't do this for everybody, but Friday's our big bite work day for our dogs on ground. So if I have somebody coming in for the weekend, I'll let them come in on Friday and train with us. And then we'll do our full class on Saturday. And they can do that like every other weekend for a couple months until they get the dog where they want. Um, probably the best way to connect with us is on Instagram. I'm working on my MeWe account but I just don't have the uh, the following there. Uh, so you can always follow us on MeWe. Um, would love that. But Instagram's where I'm most active still right now, and it's at Fortress Canine, no spaces or underscores or anything. 
Um, so, and K9 for us is always the letter K and the number nine. So fortress, letter K, number nine. Um, if you're, if you already have a dog and you're interested in getting some training, uh, we have our classes here in Orlando in, uh, on Saturdays. We also have, um, my guy who runs my franchise over in Texas also does Zoom, uh, training. He doesn't do protection work that way, but he does a lot of other work. And you can always sign up for our online training at canineacademyonline.com. And, uh, and then if you're interested in buying a puppy from us, we advertise most of those on our Instagram page at fortresscanine.puppies. I said, I appreciate you spending about an hour and a half with us today and uh, definitely recommend people check out your website, which is at fortresscanine.com, your Instagram, all your other stuff, all your social media. I will have all of that in the show notes about two weeks from now when I get back from vacation, because this is like the last thing I'm doing before I leave. Um, so... Uh, until then, I just have a link to Joel's website in the, the video notes for this video if you're watching it on YouTube or Odyssey or Float or whatever. And uh, from there, you should be able to get in touch with them and find whatever you're looking for. But, Joel, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Jack. Well, good stuff from Joel. If you want to learn more about the work that he does, about how to uh, interact with him, how to uh, maybe get a dog from him, whether it be a protection dog or just an obedience-trained pup, He's got great bloodlines. Again, the website, we mentioned it plenty of times, but I'll mention it one more time here for Joel's sake. FortressK9.com, and that's Fortress, the letter K, the number 9.com. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the things you can do is you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And if you shop there, no matter what you buy, you will help the survival podcast and the work that we do. It's a painless, no-cost way to support us. I also do post all my reviews there of items that I trust from, from manufacturers I trust, etc. Today I have kind of a twofer. twofer. Um, as you guys know, I'm a huge fan of Anchor. Anchor, A-N-K-E-R. Uh, they are my favorite value electronics brand. And I, I really struggle with even calling them that because of the connotation of basically being a cheap product. What Anchor is, is a great product, an equivalent product to, you know, kind of big-name brands at a lower cost. So value brand is exactly what they are. They're not a cheap brand. They're not a knockoff brand. It's top-quality stuff. And what I mean by that, you know, when I make a recommendation on this show, a few people or more will take it. And if I make a recommendation year after year, month after month, week after week, over time, a lot of people take it. When it comes to Anchor products, I've been recommending them since 2017. It's now 2021, believe it or not. It's fixing to be 2022. Not these speakers in of themselves, but in total, an Anchor product, I've sold more than 10,000 total units of Anchor product. 10,000. The total number of times I've heard from somebody said I got an Anchor product that broke or was messed up or whatever, right, is a handful. The total number of times I got that and I got in touch with Anchor and they didn't fix it or make it right is zero. Think about that. Over 10,000 Anchor items, zero, hey, this didn't work right, there was something wrong with whatever, Anchor told me to screw off, didn't take care of it. The few handful I get always ended and Anchor took care of it just like you said they would. You can't make that the, the, the sheer volume of electronic products today without having a few that are bad or problematic or, you know, the, the, the guy delivering it threw it over a fence and busted it or something. It's going to happen. Having a company that stands behind their shit, that's 
important to me. So I want to make this product known to you guys. I've talked about it before, actually a previous model, but I've picked up the Soundcore 2 uh, Bluetooth speaker, which is a great 12-watt speaker on a single charge, lasts for 24 hours, and you can pair two of them together. They're on sale right now for $40 bucks a piece, so a pair is $80. I use this exact setup as a sound system in my workshop, not my garage. I have an AV system in there for presentations and all, so I use that. Out in my other workshop, my 800-square-foot metal workshop, I have a set of these that just live out there, and I use them for all my music when I'm out there. It sounds fantastic. Um, and then they have the Soundcore Boost. This is a little bit more powerful. They're 20 watts of speaker, a little bit bigger. They only last for 12 hours on a charge, only 12 hours on a single charge. I've not actually used those, uh, but I've, I've had audience members that love them, so I know they're just as good as the Soundcore 2. Uh, they're on sale for $50 bucks right now, $51, so it's about $100 bucks for a set. Um, if you want a good Bluetooth speaker or, or paired set, you want to get these. And we're coming up on that Christmas season, aren't we? What a great gift for anybody that loves music, especially a pair of them. You know, I, I can't think of anybody who listens to music that wouldn't like a set of these. And here's the other thing with Bluetooth speakers. They either pair, or I'm sorry, they either they either you know join the Bluetooth real easy or they don't, right? Like everybody's had a maddening one that just won't work. Anchor works. See it? You hit pair. If you ha are trying to pair it with your phone, for instance, and it won't pair, it's paired with somebody else's phone. You need to turn it off. I mean, that, that's the only way I've ever seen. And when they, when they stereo pair, that was my skepticism. Will they actually pair together and work beautifully? Check these things out for the price. They are the bomb. Again, the Soundcore 2 at 12 watts and 24 hours of playtime per speaker. So that would be 24 watts total if you had a pair. And the Soundcore Boost at 20 watts per speaker. So 40 watts total if you had a pair at 50 bucks per speaker or about $100 a pair. And no matter what you buy, you start at... Uh, tspaz.com, tspaz.com. You help us out no matter what you buy. Shopping season is coming up for the holidays, and I'd get a jump on it this year. Okay, if, if you're the kind of person that does gifts for family members and friends and all, I'd get it done now. I don't trust the supply chain long term going into this holiday season. I would not be a last minute shopper this year. This is a great one for a lot of people in your life. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I don't have a song of the day for you guys today, so I'm just going to play The Revolution Is You, which is our theme song, the full version. Some of you might have never heard it before. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution.